Thanks, Adrian. So good. How's everyone doing? Good. good. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All that good stuff. It's great to be here and, uh, and to see you all. And uh, it really is a privilege and a huge thanks, obviously, to Pastor Stephen Bex, who invited me to come along. And hope you guys are keeping them in your prayers that uh, they'll come back refreshed and refired up for the next season that God has for us here, which is really very exciting. Well, I'm going to kick off today with my favourite psalm. And I think it's probably many of our favourite psalms. Um, But it's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Or another version says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, I don't know about you guys, but it's like it's the end of the year, right? And I mean, it still is the end of the year. It's not, uh, it's not actually the new year for another few days. And it's, you know, it's, it, at this time of the year, it's easy to get to this time of the year and a struggle to, you know, keep the energy going and struggle to keep fired up about things and struggle to keep going. I don't know about you, there are times when I find myself looking at the next year and I'm going, no, like I'm, I'm not ready yet for next year. I haven't kind of got my head around Last year yet, I still haven't finished that one out. And uh, it reminds me of a time many years ago when I was a young pastor. And it had just been one of those years, you know. I mean, I, I was exhausted. Uh, I'd been burning the candle at both ends. Uh, I was in a bit of a tough place, in a wee bit of a mess, really. I was, I was, I was a bit cynical. I was increasingly working in a daze. I was exhausted. And I'd taken my staff team to a conference. Um, but we're all at this conference, but... I'm not really at the conference. In fact, I said to God, I said, God, I'm going to give you to lunchtime to speak to me. Because I'm the boss, right? You know, it's funny how we get these little details of this relationship with God out of whack sometimes. Anyway, no surprises. By lunchtime, I hadn't heard anything. So I kind of tossed my toys out of the cot like a good mature Christian and I stormed off, left my staff there at at the conference and I'm going back to the hotel. As I'm walking back through the streets of Christchurch, on a beautiful hot uh, day, I found myself walking down past the Avon and I just got to that point where I just completely ran out of everything. I didn't realise, but God was about to make me lie down. You see, I've been ignoring the warning lights, those internal promptings to stop and rest. I felt guilty much of the time because I wasn't working. I felt at my peak capacity and at the same time people were suffering around about me. I, I Felt I couldn't share my stress with my small group because I'm the pastor and then my small group. And, and I also felt bad about what was happening because there was a bit of distance with me and Liz because of the stress state that I was in. And I knew I wasn't being a great dad. And, uh, and the problem was I didn't know what to do about it. So I just worked harder because I felt that I was getting less done. And the, the mountain of things that had to be done just kept on piling up and up. And I think if I'm really honest, I, I probably found myself getting a little angry as well. Because here I was, as best as I was able, doing, giving my all to, to help care for others. But it felt like, who was out there caring for me? What about you? You do things for others. You help other people, both in your workplace and in home and in church. And, you, know, you work hard, you encourage, you invest. But sometimes we all find ourselves asking, hey, who's doing this for me? You know, I think David had these moments. I mean, he was a shepherd. Uh, He now wasn't shepherding sheep. He was shepherding men. The Scripture tells us that disaffected guys kind of gathered around them and he's trying to 
help these guys and lift these guys and hold them together. At the same time, they're on the run from Saul who's trying to slaughter him. And uh, you know, how unjust was that, right? Saul knew that David was God's pick to be king and, and yet he was after blood. And it must have been a really challenging season for David. Here's David helping these people, but who was shepherding David? And of course, David answers that in Psalm 23 when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, I shall not want. Such an attractive idea, isn't it? This idea that God is is our shepherd. He's that caring protector. He's the one who ensures we get nourishment for our souls. He protects us from the lion and the bear, from things that will threaten us and our safety. And, And when you think about it from David's perspective, it's like there's another layer of meaning in this because for David, he's a shepherd, right? And so for him is, well, if I'm a shepherd, who is it that is shepherding me? And, and I think this is a really important thing for all of us, right? You know, if you're a teacher, who, who is it that teaches the teacher? If you're a doctor, who is it that heals the healer? If you're a builder, who builds you up? If you're an encourager, who encourages you? If you're a rescuer, who rescues you? If you're a leader, who shows you the way? And, and of course, the answer for all of us, right, is the Lord. You see, here's the point. He is the one for you that you are for others. He is the one for you that you are for others. And so David starts with himself. He says, I'm a shepherd and God is the one who shepherds me. And he says, as a result, I lack nothing. And let me say to you today, you will only lack nothing when God is that thing for you that you are for others. So the question I want to grapple with a little bit today is how can that be our experience? How can we at the end of a long, tiring year, as we look ahead to another one I'm sure right in front of us, how can we experience that thing for ourselves that God is for us? And what I love about this particular psalm is I think that there are some really powerful principles that David brings out throughout, this, throughout the song he's written that I'm, I'm confident he lived out. I know they've been powerfully helpful in my own life. And, and I hope maybe for someone here this morning, we'll find the same thing. So we're going to go through this psalm this morning. And let's start with this thought. Number one, lie down when God says, lie down. Verses two and through three, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes or he restores my soul. So interesting, isn't it? He makes me lie down. It's not he suggests that I lie down. It's not he gives me a gentle nudge. Hey, you should maybe think about lying down. No, no, it says he makes me lie down. And I'm confident that the reason why David got to that point was because David had ignored the previous nudges. Because I'm telling you, I found that if I ignore God's nudges, then the time comes when eventually He makes me lie down. You know, and when God says rest, we have to understand that when God says rest, we need to rest. And how do we know when God is saying to us, rest? (laughs) There are lots and lots of ways that God says to us, it's time to rest. Let me give you just a few. Physically, He created your body so that your body will tell you ladies and gentlemen, when it is time to rest. From a sense of tiredness or fatigue or exhaustion, from a place of maybe even getting heart palpitations, getting run down, getting sick. These are all ways that your body tells you, hey, guess what? Time to give this thing a rest. You know, I've heard people say to me, man, I'm tired all the time. 
I wonder what your body is trying to say to you. You weren't born tired. It's the same with our mind. God created our mind, hardwired our minds, so that our mind will tell us when it's time to rest. From just kind of getting a little mental fuzziness through to a lack of focus and an inability to keep on track, to blanking out, all the way through to mental health issues, God often is speaking through our symptoms. He created our emotions so that our emotions will tell us when it's time to rest. From disappointment, sadness, to cynicism, to depression, and anxiety, and panic attacks. These are all things that are saying to us, amongst other things, you know what? It is time to rest. God speaks through what He created. You know, it's like the oil warning light in your car. You know when that little red oil warning light comes on on your dash? What does that mean? That means your car is now in critical danger of becoming a large molten lump of metal that will not go anywhere. I remember when one of my three girls came to you one day and says, oh, hey, look, they had this little light on the dash. Come on. I think it's like the oil lighty thing. So I just thought I should tell you. I'm like, babe, that is so good. That's exactly right. We need to get some oil in that car. So how long's the light been on? She said, look, only a couple of weeks. <laughs> Frightening. You know, for some of us here, our warning lights have been on for way longer than a couple of weeks. A couple of years. Maybe it's time to listen before God makes you lie down. You see, God also speaks to us, not just through our bodies, but also speaks to us through His Word. And one of the first things He says to us is that we need to take a day a week. We need to observe a Sabbath and take one day a week when we do what? We do no work. That doesn't mean you have a day off when you don't go to your work, but then you go home and you thrash yourself, cutting the hedges and doing all the stuff that needs to be done. And I know that it needs to be done, but I tell you what, if you don't look after this thing, then eventually this will break down and those hedges aren't going to get cut at all. We've got to learn to take care of what God has given us. Um, I think it's so intriguing the priority God places on rest. You know, not only right at the start of creation where we're told that after God worked in six days, He took a day off. I think it's important for us to realise the priority of rest according to the biblical mandate. You know, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. 613, like these are the laws God gave to His people for how to live the human experience well. 613, but like God's smart, right? He knows there's no way we're gonna remember 613 laws. So He's like, hey, we need to whittle this down. Like 613 is good, but maybe we need to whittle it down to like, I don't know, maybe the top 100. Like the top 100, great laws, that's not gonna work. People are never gonna remember 100. Maybe we'll knock it down like the top 50. Like that, there's no way. So and then God knocks it down to the top 10. We're gonna have the top 10. We're gonna run it past the comms team. We're gonna brand this whole thing, get a cool little catchy phrase. We'll call it the, 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 the 10 slick suggestions or the 10, command, the 10 commandments. That's a, that'll, that'll work. That'll fly. We're gonna call these the 10 commandments. So then what God does is He goes, okay, so all these 613 laws, now I've got to work out which are the 10 most important ones. So if, if, if these people, if they, do, if they forget all these other ones, which are the 10, get this, are integral for living the human life? Okay, so let's go through this. Okay, what, what about the whole shaving the sideburns one? Should we, is that like, is that going to make, that's not going to make the top 10. Okay, how about the whole murder? Yeah, murder. Okay, let's definitely put the murder thing in the top 10. Like, stop killing each other. Like, it's not healthy. Okay, guess what number four is? Take a day off a week and do no work. Like, just stop and think about that for a moment. Of all of the 613 laws that he could have chosen to put in the top 10, 
One of them was you've got to rest. That thing needs to rest. You want to experience the human life as it's intended to be lived? You have to rest. You have to take a day a week. It's just so important. Because sometimes God can't restore you until you lie down. God can't refresh your soul until you stop. The second thought this morning is this. Follow where he leads Psalm 23, verse 3, he guides me along right paths for his name's sake. And that last bit is so important. Because you know what? Some of us, or probably most of us at some point, we find ourselves going, oh, I'm just not sure if, if what I think God is saying is leading me somewhere that's really in my best interests. We've all had something where we feel a nudge from God or we feel a bit of a leading from God, but we're just not sure if we want to follow that because we're not quite sure if that's actually going in the direction that we think is the best for us. We've all been in that place. But what we've got to realise is, as David said, it's for his name's sake that he leads us, not for ours. Let me explain this from the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we read about how God leads Israel out of Egypt, right? Out of the dominant military power of the day. I mean, this was massive. God leads them out. Not only does He lead them out as they're going out, they get handed gold and silver. and they, I mean, they get funded as they leave. They come out, they come to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea, wall of water to the right, wall of water to the left. They go straight through. Then the world's largest standing army is coming after them. God wipes them out in one great wave. And then they get through and now God starts providing for them. And you know what? The first time there's a little bit of a glitch, what happens? Oh, God, what are you doing? God, you brought us out here just to kill us. They start whinging. They start complaining. They don't want to keep going on and following God's lead. They want to go back to Egypt. What is going on here? Miracle after miracle of provision. And yet they still won't follow his lead. And so then what happens is this. Eventually, God has enough. God goes to Moses. He says, Moses, mate, seriously, we're done here. These people, they are doing my head in. In fact, they're doing all of our Godhead heads in. It's just like, we can't do this anymore. So we've come up with a great plan. We're going to smite them all. And we're going to start with you. All fresh, just you. It's going to be awesome. Now, look, I guarantee you there was a part of Moses that was going, oh, that's a great plan. I'm so sick of these people as well. That is genius. But Moses had been running this epic, long-running plan uh, to keep the glory of God intact. I mean, through the whole thing with Pharaoh, and with, with Israel, he had been standing up for God and God's name. And he realises that, you know, God, if you go smite three million people, that's going to get out. Like that's going to be in all the newspapers and people are going to, it's going to be in social media. People are going to hear it. It's going to totally ruin your branding. Like this is not a good thing. And so this is what God says in Numbers 14. This is what Moses says to God. He says, God, look, you can do this, but then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say... The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Moses is saying, God, you can't do this for your reputation. 
You can't do this for your namesake. So God forgives them and on they go. You see, God places his reputation above his comfort. What does that mean? It means he does not want his reputation wrecked by leading his place, people to places of failure or pain or waste. He doesn't want his reputation as God to be that God is unreliable or God is unfaithful or God is not good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why you and I can have confidence in God's leading because He's not going to lead us anywhere that is going to produce a bad result for His name's sake. You know what I'm saying? I mean, how often do we talk about how God is good all the time and all the time God is good. That matters. That is true. And God is into the business of leading His people increasingly so that that is the truth. And here's the thing, when you don't follow His guidance, you are keeping yourself out from the enjoyment and the success that God wants you to have. And when people follow God's lead, God does amazing things for them. I've said it in the previous two services. I mean, you think about Luke and Pastor Luke and Marilyn. You know, if we could go back and see them when Luke was still kind of fixing chairs in his garage, he had this little business going, and then they go off to Bible college. And, uh, and for three years, they're going to Bible college. And, and Marilyn is looking after three kids in a caravan, in a caravan while Luke's going to Bible college, I'm confident there were moments when Marilyn's going, I'm not sure, God, if you're leading us for our best interests right now. That must have been tough. But you know what? If there's one thing that Luke and Marilyn did, they keep saying, okay, God, if this is what you're leading, we're going to keep trusting. We're going to keep following. And now, of course, we look at one of the biggest churches in New Zealand, ministries that affect Thousands of people have taken Luke and Marilyn around the world. He ministers. He must have ministered to hundreds of thousands of people over the years. Seen miracles happen. We continually see it happen. I mean, what God will do with someone who is willing to follow His lead, trusting that He will lead them well for His name's sake. Amen. The third thought this morning is this. Don't camp in life's valleys. Psalm 23 verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Can I say God's people camp on mountaintops. We don't camp in valleys. We walk through them. Don't set up your camp. Don't set up your camp in grief. Don't set up your camp in the midst of hurt or in disappointment. Keep on walking. There's a way through and he will lead you if you'll just keep on going. You know, grief can be a complex thing, right? It's actually a healing response to loss, which is why you have to go through the grief process. It's part of how God designed us to put ourselves back together, which is why when you avoid grief, it's as destructive as when you get stuck by staying in grief. You see, sometimes we don't allow ourselves to grieve. It's like not letting a wound heal. You have to accept reality. You have to experience the pain of loss. You have to readjust and reorganize your world. And these don't happen in a straight line. It's a back and forth thing between pain and avoiding the pain, between letting go and refusing to let go, between staying in bed and hiding and then dragging yourself up and getting out there and trying new things again. And it's interesting, the latest psychology out there says that healing occurs in that back and forward, day to day, walking through the valley. That's when our soul finds itself again. The problem comes when we don't keep going, when we give up, 
when we stop fighting, when we stop obeying the Lord. You know, some of you may have heard the poem uh, Footprints. Now, Footprints is a classic old poem. It talks about a person who has a dream and in the dream they see a set of footprints in the sand and, and there's one set of footprints for them and there's another set of footprints and that's the Lord walking, you know, and then the dream goes on and, and then they follow the footprints and they see a period of life where there's just one set of footprints and it coincides with that person's darkest time in their life and they say to God, God, I see in my darkest times there's only one set of footprints. Why would you leave me in my darkest times? And God says, no, my child, you got it all wrong. It wasn't that I left you. It was then that I carried you. Okay, so we know the whole thing of footprints. Well, I recently found another version, which I think is profoundly helpful. Let me read this to you. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen, the footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared and I asked the Lord, what have we here? These prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and you made me wait. You disobeyed. You would not grow. The walk of faith, you would not know. So I got tired. I got fed up and there I dropped you on your butt. (laughs) Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. (laughs) You're hurt and you want to stop. That's fine. Take a rest. But how long have you been resting there? You see, some people make their emotional home in their darkest valley when all the time Jesus is just a few steps ahead saying, come on, you can do this. Keep walking. You are almost through. The fourth thought this morning is this. When it comes to your enemies, let go and let God. Psalm 23 verse 5, David says, You prepare a table Before me, in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Don't run away from your enemies. And we we all have those problems when it feels like someone is against us. Maybe it's a boss who seems to have gone in his head that he doesn't like us or a colleague that we find intimidating or a a difficult marriage situation or or something going on in our small group or a church. We, We all know what it is to feel like we've got an enemy against us. But I'm telling you, the Bible says if God is for us, Who can be against us? And David illustrates this very powerfully. So this whole thing of you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Let me paint you a picture. Imagine that there are two massive armies drawn up and battle lines facing each other, ready to engage. We've all probably seen Lord of the Rings and massive armies, so we know kind of the old warfare style. And, and so there's this massive army, the enemy's out in front of you, 100 yards away, and your whole army's here, and you are right in the front. And it's just a matter of moments before these two armies go running towards each other and it's just going to be horrible. And then suddenly, just moments before someone charges, a guy comes walking out in tails, carrying a table. And he puts a table down in front of you. And another guy comes walking out in tails with a tablecloth. He puts a tablecloth over it. 
And then a whole line of waiters come out carrying silver trays with, with, with roast pork in them and, and uh, roast lamb and apple sauce and roast potatoes and juicy sweet corn and vegetables. And they create this whole beautiful meal in front of you. And then they turn and beckon you to come and sit down. Like how bizarre would that situation be? You see, the, the real problem is not even for you. The real problem is for the enemy. Because an enemy watching this is going, what is it about what's going on over there that we don't get that makes them so confident that before battle, they're actually going to pause and have tea? You see, God is so unconcerned about your enemy and his plans that he's going to prepare a table for you in the presence of you. He is so unconcerned about their, about their plans. He's so unconcerned about their strategies. He's so, so unconcerned about the size of that. That it's like, no, no, I don't even care. Let's have tea. We'll sort that out later. And I'm telling you, with you and the issues that you are facing, Sometimes there are things that you're coming across. God isn't phased by that. God's not worried. He's not concerned. He already has a way through. He already has a plan to deal with that. And so He's going to stop for tea and He's going to prepare that for you, a moment of peace in the midst of the craziness. You can trust Him. When it comes to God, when, you, sorry, when it comes to your enemies, let go and let God. You know, when I first became a pastor, the intriguing thing was that there were a whole bunch of people who wrote letters to our national leadership team saying why I shouldn't be a pastor. You know, I'm too young, I'm too inexperienced, I shouldn't be given a church the size I was given. All this kind of stuff was going on. I mean, I was 33, right? Hey, Jesus was 33 and he'd finished his ministry. <laughs> These people would not have liked Jesus as their pastor. Like he'd be too young, too inexperienced. You know, but there was nothing I could do, right? So I just had to let go and let go. You know, and just fast forward just a few years and now I'm the national leader and now they're all reporting to me. Funny how God does these things, right? You can trust God with your enemy. You can trust God with your obstacle. When you're faced by enemies, let go and let God. The fifth thought is this, you have to slow down for the good stuff. Psalm 23 verse six, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And here's the thing, people, God's goodness and God's love will follow you. The question is, will they catch you? Or are you just running way too fast? You're never even slowing down. You're never pausing to enjoy the good things in life. Don't run your race so fast that goodness and love never manage to catch up to you. You've got to pause frequently enough that you get to experience and enjoy the goodness and love that God is sending your way. You know, listen, I do a bit of running and, um, and it's quite interesting because we're quite different personality types. Like I'm melancholic, that means I'm a beaver, which means, you know, in terms of the animal metaphor, I'm all about building the dam, building the dam, building the dam, that's what I'm here to do. Meanwhile, Liz is sanguine personality. So she's like the otter. So she's all about play, play, play. That's what it is, play, play, Build, 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 play, build. So it's quite funny some, because we sometimes clash on things. But you know, God showed me many, many years ago that God gave me that woman with that personality type because I need a little bit of that in my life and vice versa. But it's funny when we go running. So we might be going out for a run. Let's say we're 10Ks away from home. We've gone out, we're gonna turn around and come back. So we get to the turnaround point and we're just turning around to go back and Liz goes, wait, breathe. I'm like, what do you... What do you think I've been doing for like the last 10 kilometers? She goes, kiss me. I'm like, 
I can't. It's going to ruin my split. Are you kidding me? This is going to, I can't. I can't waste the time. And then, you know, a little light goes on. Jeepers, Griff, your wife wants to kiss you. Get with the program, son. You know, slow down, stop, enjoy the moment. You know, like, and so we stop and I breathe and quell my frustration, kiss my lovely wife, and then we run back again. But you know, it's those moments, that's where the magic happens. And how many of us are running so fast all the time that we never pause to breathe? We never pause to have those moments with the, woman, with the people in our lives that matter the most. I'm telling you, the good stuff happens only when you slow down. We'll get the team up as we come to a close. I'm just going to do this very last point very quickly, but this is the last thought this morning. You've got to commit to community. Psalm 23, verse 6, and David says, and I will dwell, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, there's one place that offers hope for the depleted soul, and that's the, hope, that's the house of the Lord. You know, to David, the house of the Lord and that people of God were indistinguishable. In the Old Testament, the house of God was the temple and the community life that operated and oriented around that. Likewise, in the New Testament, the the temple of God, the house of God is us individually and collectively and the life and the ministry and the worship that happens around about that. They are indistinguishable. And to dwell is to live in, to commit to, to be a part of, to stay in community with. You know what? You can't dwell if you're just rocking up once a month to get a little fix and, and tick the box and go home. There's so much you miss out on when we don't dwell, when we're not part of something. And that's why we want all our people to be in small groups, to be able to be a part of something that is ongoing, where you can dwell in the house of God, the life of God, the people of God, because there is a restoration, a refreshing that happens only in that place. I know absolutely, yes, the church can be painful sometimes, but it's still home. The church can be even frustrating sometimes, I know, but it's still home. Because you see, the church can also be incredible sometimes, and it can be hilarious, and it can be strength-giving, and it can be lifting, and it can be all of those good things, but it only happens for those who dwell in that place. And that story I started with, me leaving that conference, walking down through the streets. Well, I just hit this point and it was just like, I just can't walk anymore. And so I lay down. I lay down on the grass next to this poplar tree next to the Avon River without even thinking, just lay there, just completely spent and exhausted. And then it took about four seconds for the guilt to kick in, like I'm a Christian and I'm lying down when I should be at a conference with my staff, so I better do something Christian-y. So I pulled out my Bible just happened to fall open to Psalm 23. And I read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I remember thinking, ha isn't that funny? I'm, like I'm lying on the grass. Ha He leads me beside quiet waters. Okay, this is getting a little bit freaky right now. And then it says, He restores my soul. And I close my eyes. And I felt a feeling that I felt many times before, but never identified it. As I lay there listening to the river burbling along beside me, feeling the sun on my face lying on the grass, it was like I could just feel myself coming back together again on the inside. He restores my soul. You need a restored soul this morning. You need a refreshed soul. Lie down when He says, lie down. Follow 
where He leads. Don't camp in life's valleys. When it comes to your enemies, let go and let God. You have to slow down for the good stuff. And lastly, commit to community. Come on, let's just bow our heads a moment and pray. Let me pray for you just before Pastor Adrian comes up again. Mighty God, I thank you for your word.